0: When I decided to accept Christ as my savior, I didn't like the person that I was becoming. I was 15, almost 16 years old, and I just didn't like how bitter I was, how resentful I was, how judgmental I was of other people, how mean I was. And I had friends who didn't behave like that. And I really found that attractive, that there was this inherent goodness about them that seemed incorruptible. And I thought that's what I want. I want to have a better life than what I've had so far. Because what I've had so far has been—it's been pretty rough. It's been really rough getting through all of this.
1: Welcome to the Depolarized Podcast. I'm Dan Koch,
2: and I'm Ellen Morrow,
1: and this is the show where we look for common ground at the center of religion, psychology, and politics, the confluence, you might say, of those things. Now, last week, we took a week off because of some travel, both myself and Chris, our editor and mixer. So thank you for your patience. And two weeks ago and three weeks ago, we had a two-part episode on liberal mainline Protestants. And I want to address one note that I received many emails about, which is basically a lot of people saying, hey, Jack and Debbie and Tripp were great, but I'm a liberal mainline Protestant and I'm not nearly as political as them or I'm not nearly as politically left as they are. To which I would just say, of course, they were a small sample. That's who we talked to. And so apologies if you felt like that was saying that's the only kind of liberal mainliner you can be. Of course, it's not the only kind you can be. Well said. Well said. Thank you. So this week... We are talking to the remainder of our non-evangelical Christians. Now, in order to just place ourselves in this season, Ellen, will you remind us what our four groups of voters are? Why
2: do you do this to me, Dan? Okay. First, we've got white evangelical Trump voters. Correct. We've got white evangelical non-Trump voters. Correct. We've got
0: non white v- voters christian and voters yeah and,
2: and we've got non
1: christian voters non evangelical christian voters you really can't do lists i'm it's i'm I don't very know what visual it is. dan i'm okay, staring here fine. i'm looking
2: at the i'm looking at the ceiling and i've got that. i it's cannot picture a, yeah. the,
1: uh the fourth group is non evangelical christians they Did are I christians non christians <laughs> These are Christians who are not evangelical Christians. They are just other kinds of Christians. And the liberal mainliners were part of that. And then here's the second part I of that. I feel like an idiot. Now, I it's a little bit sad to say these last two episodes, these are our final episodes of the season. Uh, are you going to cry?
2: Are you, are you going to cry, Dan?
1: It feels like the end of summer camp. No, I'm not <laughs> going to cry. We're, we'll take a few months off and then we'll be back with season three. So a lot of the stuff that I was planning for season two will be in season three. And... I just want to say thank you guys for sticking with us for so long. It has been kind of a lot of episodes and a lot of content, and I'm grateful for people sticking it out with us. But we have now before us the remainder of our non-evangelical Christians, and that is three people. Mary is a Catholic, Tom is an Orthodox priest, Greek Orthodox, and Jennifer is a Mennonite. And we're going to hear a little bit from them about what those different traditions are. But Ellen, I feel like maybe let's say a few words about Mennonites, right? Because that's well, the mm-hmm. least... Well, here's what
2: I'll say. I don't know a lot about Mennonites, Mennonitism.
1: Mennonitism.
2: But when I hear that word, I think of, say, a Quaker-looking yeah. person or an Amish person with yeah. the bonnets and the the...
1: The reason you think that is because Amish are a subset of Mennonites, so there are like Classical Mennonites who live on the land, dress very conservatively, maybe don't have instruments. They live like it's like
2: 1825.
1: Yeah. Uh, But then there are also what they call assimilated kind of modern Mennonites. So Jennifer is an assimilated Mennonite. She lives in Seattle. She wears street clothes. The common thread, though, between classic and sort of modern Mennonites is they are what she calls it a peace witness church. That means that they are a church. That takes the nonviolent teachings of Jesus incredibly seriously. It's kind of at the center of their theology.
2: So the main driving force behind Men- Okay, Mennonites, is there a word for Mennonitism?
1: Mennonitism. I like that. That's good.
2: Is like pass like a Christian pacifist sort of.
1: Uh, that's yeah. That's belief. one of the biggest things. So the larger tradition is called the Anabaptist tradition, and
2: not anti-baptist. Not
1: anti-baptist. Anabaptist. I used to get
2: confused about when I w- people would order an- anti-pasta, anti-pasta. <laughs> and I was like, what, what does everybody have against pasta? Uh,
1: okay, so I did miss, I did misspeak. Amish are not a subset of Mennonite. Both Mennonites and Amish are a subset of Anabaptist. Okay, so Anabaptism is the bigger group, and that is really just... I don't want to get into the theological or like ecclesial details of when they broke off from the Catholic Church fall, and all that. I'll fall asleep and Who fall cares? off the chair. Anyway, the point is wine. now they're really into pacifism and they take, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount very seriously. They would regard it as more important than Paul, for instance. In in my interactions, Paul's writings, Paul's writings, Not yeah, just like Paul. Pride of place goes to Jesus's teachings.
2: That seems all right.
1: Yeah. Um, for example, Neo- Anabaptism is becoming a bit more popular in the United States. Greg Boyd, who I interviewed last season, and we'll hear a clip from him. He is a neo-Anabaptist evangelical preacher, and Jason Brooks, one of our Christians of color, he is also in the Neo-Anabaptist tradition. So Jennifer's thing, the Mennonites are kind of maybe a, you might say, a purer form of that kind of hmm. strain of Christianity. Hmm. So, all that having been said, let's remember that each of these people do not speak for their entire denominations, just like Jack and Debbie and Tripp do not speak for all of liberal mainline Protestantism, but it's cool to get a nice little array of voices. And we're going to try and step out of the way as much as we can while still making things clear and listen to them. So, we'll start to listen to them by hearing them give us their name, their tradition, and what makes that tradition distinct from other types of Christianity.
3: My name is Mary Kenegi Mitchell, and I'm 43 years old and I'm Catholic.
1: What makes Catholicism? I know this is a big question, but what makes Catholicism distinct from other types of Christianity?
3: I should say I'm a little bit of a weird Catholic in that I'm an adult convert with kind of half my heart still in the Protestant church. I grew up Presbyterian. My husband is Presbyterian. My oldest friends are mostly Protestant. But what attracted me to the Catholic Church as distinctive enough to actually want to go over there is the sense of the church kind of existing throughout time, and that, you know, the people in my small group are the church with me, but also St. Francis and St. Ignatius and Mary, the mother of Jesus, are also the church with me. I'm also really attracted to liturgy.
1: So, Father Tom, can you start by. Giving us your
4: name, age, where you live. <laughs> it's easy. My name is uh, Father Tom. Actually, my Greek name is Father Athanasios, which means Athanasius, uh, the the one who does not die. So that's a kind of a nice name. But I'm 61 years old, and I live in Seattle, Washington.
5: Yeah.
1: And you are a Greek. sorry
4: for my sorry for my voice. Yeah, you
1: have a you have a bit of a cold. Yeah, that's okay. And you are a Greek Orthodox priest. I'm a Greek Orthodox priest. Uh, for those of us uninitiated, that means you can be married. It's not like a Catholic married. priest. Married, right, right. You have a part-time counseling
4: practice. I still do on Mondays in Green Lake. Yeah. yeah. It's been kind of a nice thing. And uh,
1: you sort of shepherd this church where we are doing this interview. Absolutely. Holy Apostles Church here, Yeah and we're surrounded by some beautiful art and icons and like a golden New Testament. Maybe it's the Gospels. It's the Gospel,
4: yeah, that's what we use in our church, yeah. And an
1: espresso maker. There you go. (laughs) Life of a modern priest. What separates Greek Orthodoxy from, say, other kinds of Christianity
4: that we find in America? When you look historically, the creed, it says, I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic apostolic church, sorry for my voice, you know, what church are we talking about? And as Orthodox Christians, we believe this is the church that's trying to maintain the principles, the values, the way of life of the early Christians. So pretty much when you look at the Orthodox Church historically, you know, how we lo- look at the red ink of what Jesus said, we tr- try to honor that. So when we look at the red ink and he says, this is my body, this is my blood, it's not a symbol for us, The very real presence of uh, in, in the Eucharist. And when it says that every generation will call you blessed, the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos, the Mother of God, Mary, uh, we honor her, and a lot of people misunderstand that, feeling we worship Mary, but we, we love the person who housed our Savior. So, yeah,
1: the Orthodox Church does not share the type of evangelism, for instance, that I was raised with, being non-denominational. Orthodox that I know are much more happy to just sort of live and live by example, right. love by example, and if people right. want to come, great. Right. Can you talk about just maybe the orthodox approach to evangelism?
4: I think there there's is pretty much over the door that you came in as icon of St. Seraphim of He says, acquire the spirit of peace, and a thousand souls will be saved. Mm-hmm. I think I learned my faith not from my mother preaching to me or teaching to me or telling me what to do, was watching when she went silently in her room and prayed. and So I think it's out of the example of who we are that, that people see our witness, and we don't go in the corners telling people about Jesus. We try to become the life of Christ in, in our own personal life.
1: Acquire the spirit of peace and a thousand souls will be saved. Yeah.
4: You might ask, what
1: ought a Christian to spend their time on? And one answer might be, preach the gospel. And another answer might be, become like Christ. And then the gospel will be preached through you.
0: Right.
1: And you would right. go with the latter.
0: Right, right. I'm Jennifer Delante. I'm a 55 year old female who lives in Seattle, Washington. I belong to the Mennonite denomination, and this distinctiveness is it's a historic peace and witness church that um, embraces nonviolence.
1: And how would you say that that embrace of nonviolence? Affects either the theology or the lived sort of week by week or day by day experience of Mennonites as opposed to other congregations?
0: One of the things I really like about the Mennonite church is they embrace being the quiet in the land, being countercultural to all the things in, within our, our human condition that would strike back, that would not turn the other cheek. They take the admonition to be a, a new and different person than what our human inclinations may, may call for and also what our societal dictates are as well. And I find that very attractive because there is far too much violence in our world and in our hearts and to be able to, to turn to a faith and be a witness that is a counterpoint to violence I think is very important in our society. I was born on the 5th of July, and so I've always loved you know having my, my birthday right there with the Fourth of July and everything. And then, then when I became a Christian and started going to Anabaptist churches, I was finding just a, a very different viewpoint, and it's been part of a, a long education that has shown me that fidelity to Christ is a very different thing than fidelity to the USA.
1: So, there are a lot of things that we could kind of pick apart there, Ellen. But one thing that I think is worth dwelling on for a second is that the Orthodox understanding of salvation really is different than, for instance, an evangelical understanding. How so? Well, you heard him kind of talk a little bit about evangelism, you know, and he says the way we think about evangelism is acquire the spirit of peace and a thousand souls will be saved. It's kind of like salvation for the Orthodox is more like the the image that i often hear is the church is like a hospital for the sick you go to the church because you are sick and christ through the church makes you well
2: as opposed to
1: as opposed to you you check the right boxes i'm being a little unfair here but you say the prayer you check the right boxes you get your ticket to heaven so there's a martin luther had an idea that he called the perseverance of the saints which means once saved always saved essentially that's that doctrine that you and I certainly grew up with, and the Orthodox would say, "Well, no, not really. Uh, you you really have to like keep following Christ, and the church is here to help you in that mission." Or to be safe,
2: saying we don't know.
1: Yeah, or they would maybe say, "Yeah, we're we're a bit more we agnostic know, about yeah. that." I, I you know, and we'll, we'll hear a bit more from uh, Father Tom about this in a later section, but that's worth noting. And then let's get a little bit more into the Mennonite position which Jennifer started to explain. And I want to bring in the voice of Greg Boyd from last season, neo-Anabaptist, as I said. Jennifer mentioned that fidelity to Christ is different than fidelity to the USA. And this is something that's going to come up a few times in our interview with her. I asked Greg in our interview last season to list for me some of the values of American culture that he thinks are actually at odds or in tension with a life of following Jesus. Hmm. So... When, when we say fidelity to Christ butts up against fidelity to the USA, like where are those actually at odds with each other? Okay. So here is me huh. with Greg last season.
5: You have the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. <laughs> yeah. like, and, so, and that is a very great cultural mantra. You know, that's wonderful. But as a kingdom person, I sacrifice my right to everything, I, I, I've surrendered my rights. And I'm not pursuing happiness. I'm pursuing God's will, which leads to joy, not necessarily happiness, but does lead to joy yeah, or, or, or uh, liberty. You know, I have my rights. So you have the, you know, the, the Christians fighting for the, their rights and everyone's worried about them taking away their rights. And we want to you know, have our right not to have to serve gay people or whatever. And I, I just can't imagine Jesus, you know, doing that. He, hmm. he, the king, he set aside all of his rights. You know, if God did it, how much more are we called to do it? He set aside Philippians 2. All, all of his prerogatives didn't cling to anything, but he emptied himself. And so it's about emptying yourself for the sake of others. A big part of our, you know, culture is, is uh, well, honestly, it runs on greed. And, and I'm not critiquing it for that. You know, capitalism runs – people always have to want more. And so we have a whole system of, of creating in people a hunger for more. Every advertisement, in one way or another, is saying you're not quite okay as you are. You really need this product, and you know it works. Uh, It's it's kind of brilliant. Take you know this vice and turn it into a virtue, and and you can build an economy on it. But as a follower of Jesus, I have to know that you know Jesus said, "Be careful about all kinds of greed." I'm supposed to be moving in the opposite direction, divesting myself rather than accumulating. You know all of this. The individualism of our culture goes up against the community value of the New Testament. You know, idolatry all over the place. I mean, where we are finding our worth, an idol is anything we find our ultimate worth in. And and people find their worth in their possessions and their money and their achievements and their sexiness and their you name it. And uh, to follow Jesus means we have to be uh, bucking up against all that. So the contrast is all important. The contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. In, in the culture, everyone wants you know, as much power as they can, the power to impose your will on others. That's what that, that's what the politics of the world runs by. You want to impose your will on others because you believe that your will is superior and more. you care more and you're smarter than others. So you want to get the power to impose your will on others. But the kingdom, we don't have to be lording over anybody. I mean, Jesus said the pagans, they lord over one another, but it should not be so among you. Among you, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. It's better to serve than it is to be served. And so, the, the kingdom is fundamentally opposed to fundamental aspects of the culture. But if we start to say that the culture is Christian, uh, or that we're the guardians of the culture, well, then then we end up Christianizing the very stuff we're supposed to be resisting. Yeah, and that, it's not new with America. I mean, this goes back to the third, fourth century, and, and this is Christendom, the Church of Christendom. And um, my whole passion is to uh, help people see that the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated looks very, very, very different than every version of Christendom, America, British, you name it. Uh, it yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very different.
1: So because this group of voters that we interviewed, which includes Jack and Debbie from last episodes, we're calling them non-evangelical Christians. I thought it would be helpful to ask them in their own words, how they think about it. Why aren't they evangelical? Like, what about them is different than evangelical Christianity? So here's what they had to say.
3: I I did go to a pretty evangelical summer camp, to Camp Furwood, nice. um, where I prayed the Jesus prayer and received Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. And I loved going to that camp. I, and it's and then when I think of sort of evangelicalism, I think of Camp Furwood. So I think of sort of an emotional Christianity, a really enthusiastic Christianity. Uh, but I also remember from that camp, you know, counselors talking about somebody who used to be a counselor who, oh, she's really fallen away. And so I think sort of a like a willingness to to say that there are insiders and outsiders. I don't think that's unique to evangelicalism, but I I remember seeing that there. My extended family includes evangelicals. Going to church with them on the 4th of July was eye-opening. I hadn't uh, seen so many flags or sang so many patriotic songs in church ever before. (laughs) Um,
1: So so sort of a a Christian nationalism or some combination of church and state there.
3: Yeah. I mean, just uh, like a, a, to me, strange conflation of like, we're so blessed to be Christians and blessed to be Americans. And like, I fully agree, but I wouldn't put those things in the same sentence. Like, mm. I mean, I'm very grateful to live in America, but it's like, that's not even on the same level with mm. my gratitude for being part of the Christian church.
4: Yeah, We used to worship at, um. At Episcopal Church up in Kenmore, in the Church of the Redeemer across the street was a beautiful pastor, and I think we had some conversations about Christ and the church, and, and I think he asked me the question, of if I'm saved, and I said, I don't get to decide that, but I hope I'm, I'm saved. I'm trying to open my heart to the Lord and try to follow his His, his life and learn from the scriptures and, and participate in the sacraments and whatever our church has to offer, and he quoted me some scripture. It says here that if you claim these words, then you're saved. So for me, I think the hard thing is for him, I felt like he felt sorry for me, like I wasn't saved, like I had the deficiency. And for me, I was telling him, I don't get to decide that at the end of the day, Jesus is the one that's going to say, come in. And salvation for Orthodox Christians is becoming in communion and union with, with God, not an idea of just a moment in time where we accept Jesus. It's like somebody getting married. I tell the people i marry, that this is the beginning of your journey, and many people decide they don't want to stay married. And a lot of people have a relationship with Jesus, and decide it's not for them. So I'm not here to say who's going to be saved in those uh, circumstances, but I know we have a loving God. He didn't come here to punish me or you. I believe in a a God who wants to heal and not to punish.
0: Well, evangelical of late, I would say over the last 40 years or so, has been to mean a conservative, uh, literal interpretation of Scripture and then there's also a an affiliation politically in our nation around um, voting with a certain political party. Um, generally speaking, that's the Republican Party.
1: And so why would evangelical not apply to you or your church?
0: Evangelical does not apply to me because one thing we do not do is we do not have the American flag within our sanctuaries, hmm. or at least within the sanctuaries that I have worshipped in. And it seems to me that more evangelical, conservative churches have married together um, patriotism for our nation and faith in Jesus. I'm concerned that Jennifer
2: thinks that all evangelical churches are like that movie uh, Christ Camp, Jesus Camp.
1: Jesus Camp. (laughs)
2: Because my church doesn't have a an American right. flag in there. What's
1: ah uh, yeah? I think I went to church with some American flags growing up. Yeah, I mean it's not. I mean it's... I know it's
2: that some churches have it, but it's, she's she clearly thinks like that's the difference between.
1: Well, yeah, and you know, everyone's experience is different, and the Mennonite Church really sort of makes a point of you know, as we heard from Greg, like really kind of challenging yeah, being nationalism. Like that. And, and so, it, you know, that's maybe just kind of a poetic way that she thinks of it. And it's interesting that Mary made a similar yeah, point.
2: Yeah, what's, what's the flags? They both are talking about American flags.
1: I didn't tell them to. I just asked them a question and, and let the chips fall. I think that's strange. Not that I need to defend Father Tom against the beautiful pastor that he was talking to in <laughs> I his like story. That.
2: He seems like such a loving guy that he, he would even call the pastor of the church across his street like a beautiful pastor. There's a
1: beautiful pastor over there who thought I was going to hell. <laughs> So good. (laughs) But anyway, so that that pastor says to Tom, um, you know, here's the scripture that says, if you commit to these words, you'll be saved. But Tom could have replied back, you know, well, then there's also the sheep and the goats parable that Jesus tells where a bunch of people come up and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied, cast out demons in your name. And Jesus says, get away from me. I never knew you. You never fed the poor. You never, you know, clothed the, the naked. And so there is a tension in scripture about once we are saved or Is that it Or Is it not about The labels That we give ourselves Or Being a quote Christian Is it about something else Some kind of activity or getting
2: saved At summer camp
1: Yeah Although Getting saved at summer camp Is great Like Mary did And it, Like even Mary would say She became a Christian In the evangelical church And she's still a Christian So it's not like she thinks That that was all bogus Or right. anything But she's a Catholic now So that's interesting Before we get all the way to Trump, because you know that's where we're heading, let's focus a bit more on their faith, the different ways that they think about Christianity and Jesus, and then the way that that makes them think about politics. Let's start with our standard question. What, in your own words, is the gospel of Jesus Christ?
3: I think the gospel to me means that God's kingdom is here now. So when I hear the words in Mark, the kingdom of God is at hand, I don't hear that as like, it's almost here. Get ready, because it's about at hand. The way I hear at hand means like, it's really near now. Like heaven and earth are already overlapping. God isn't far away. God is with us.
4: For me, the good news of Jesus Christ is that we are created in his image and likeness and because of the fall there's a deformity there's a disconnectedness between our head and our heart so the gospel of jesus christ for me is is returning to that original beauty and cleansing our souls from everything that is truly not who we are created to be and if it's true which i believe in my authentic beauty is is somebody who houses the is the temple of the holy spirit So for me, the gospel is living from that sacred space, breathing from that sacred space, and really loving and having compassion from that sacred place where I I fall so much and I don't achieve that. But that's, for me, the gospel, is to become in in union and and communion with, with Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ
0: is that there is a different and better way to be in life than the life that you may have already known and tried to make a way forward with. The good news of Jesus says, come, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it says, do no harm to others. Know that God loves you, that there is such a thing as unconditional love. When I decided to set accept Christ as my savior, I didn't like the person that I was becoming. I was 15, almost 16 years old, and I just didn't like how bitter I was, how resentful I was, how judgmental I was of other people, how mean I was. And I had friends who didn't behave like that. And I really found that attractive, that there was this inherent goodness about them that seemed incorruptible and i thought that's what i want i want to have a better life than what i've had so far cuz what i've had so far has been it's been pretty rough it's been really rough getting through all of this and as i was waiting for adulthood to finally arrive so i could finally have the life that i wanted to have i i knew i needed something better and so my friend was just a, a wonderful witness to me of that, just her, her kindness, the way that she would not intentionally hurt anybody, the way that she was nice to people she didn't have to be nice to, those sorts of things. That I, I saw Jesus in her.
2: It seems like all all three of them really speak about like this pursuit of life to be yeah. like Christ. And I don't think yeah. we really heard that from some of our other do
1: evangelicals. It's not that evangelicals wouldn't talk about becoming Christ-like, but...
2: it did, Well, what I mean is it wasn't how they described the gospel.
1: Yeah. The thing that stuck out to me, I would say is that all three of these guys, they really focused a lot on this world. They focused on this life. Whereas the way I was raised was, you know, this life is, is kind of the blink of an eye. This life is sort of the... Prequel so to let's pray uh, the, for the rapture. Yeah, let's get this thing over with and and go where we're where we're really at home. And I do have hope for the future after I live on Earth. But it's interesting to notice that like there also is a lot of talk in the gospel about the kingdom of heaven is is here among you now, and there's work to be done. And as I said, the sheep and the goats, the people who make it in. They cared for the marginalized, basically. you know, basically. because
2: I grew up similar to you with this whole idea of, you know, the heaven and the second life, I never understood the whole concept of the kingdom of heaven being he- yeah. here. Yeah. I don't I still, I couldn't, I couldn't explain that to somebody.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give you my take on it. I think that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, he's basically describing the way that God would have things be. So it's like in the real world, the workers who work for 10 hours get 10 times as much money as the person who shows up for the final hour in the kingdom of God, they all get blessed the same, right? In, in God's economy, it is not as competitive. It is. Are you saying that the
2: kingdom of God is just a socialist nation?
1: Your words. Uh, But the kingdom of God is where the Beatitudes are true, is where the poor are blessed. It is where the rich are sent away hungry, right? It's like, that is the kingdom of God. And to the best that we can do it, our job while we're alive is to allow that kingdom to break in even more. I mean, in the Lord's prayer, almost the first thing we say is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, meaning... The way it is in heaven is the way God wants it, and we hope that that's what the future is like. In the meanwhile, to use N.T. rights language, it has broken in through Christ into this world, and our job as Christians is to facilitate the inbreaking of God's kingdom here. So that's why we care for the poor. That's why we...
2: Because we are a part of God's kingdom. Yeah,
1: we are basically ambassadors. I think Tripp talked about that a couple weeks ago. You know, we are ambassadors of this reign of God on earth even though a lot of the, evidence... there's a lot
2: of ambassadors doing a real shit job.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So Ellen, I'd like to conscript you into this effort with me now of asking two things of our listeners, because I always end up asking this by myself and I record it later and it's lonely. I just sit there with my little microphone. Let's do it together. So okay. there's there's two things we'd like people to do. Well,
2: wait a second. What oh. do you want me maybe I need to agree to it? What well, why
1: don't I tell you what they are okay. and then you tell me if you sign off? <laughs> okay. Number one is I'd like people to sign up for my email list to be notified oh, yeah. about the show and yep. other shows. And number two is the Patreon. Patreon. Yeah. Are yeah. you okay? You yes. sign off? Okay.
2: Please, please. <laughs> Please Go to Patreon how, how do you How do you do you it? You go to a P-A-T you, you, you know what? I've noticed about a lot of podcasts yeah. They don't tell you how Patreon is spelled I guessed right. it But a lot of people may not know it's how true. it's spelled
1: That's why you can go to depolarizepodcast.com And click become a patron Or you can go to patreon.com E-O-N
2: P-A-T-R-E-O-N
1: Dot com slash depolarize And you know last summer They should have I, a Christian
2: version called Patreon of Saints <laughs> Dot
1: com <laughs> Patreon saints. We should call people our Patreon saints. The people who give. That should That's be their little great. nickname. We
2: could make shirts.
1: I'm a Patreon saint. Hashtag oh depolarize. My gosh. I nobody would. We no one would buy that or want that. Anyway, last summer I paused working on depolarize and actually refunded all the Patreon money because I was not working on anything. But as soon as we go to break here, that's not the case. I'm already working on season three. I'm already lining up interviews for it. And I'm also working on other podcasts that are kind of in this realm. And I would love your continued support. It'd be helpful. And then the first thing I mentioned is I have an email list. I don't bum you out with spam. But if you go to DanCokeWords.com, not a lot of Dan Koch URLs were left. Alan, don't How give do me you that spell luck.
2: Dan Coke?
1: D-A-N-K-O-C-H Words.com. I will let you know news about Depolarize or Reconstruct, my other podcast, or these new podcasts that I'm also cooking up in the background, as well as times that I've been interviewed elsewhere or books I'm reading, articles I think and are And I'm great, trying to convince Dan
2: to have a Depolarize wine club.
1: <laughs> if so and when we start it. That would be start a it.
2: good thing for a Patreon subscription is like at some level, you get we to wine send taste. you... Like the wine of the month,
1: he said. You a case of wine. Whatever
2: I'm drinking, <laughs> whatever Ellen's
1: drinking, while which we're recording, which means whatever
2: you and your wife purchased. Jeffrey and
1: I bought at Trader Joe's, basically, yeah. is what you drink. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, so thank you for in joining me in that, Ellen, and thank you guys for your continued support. I love working on this stuff, and I love how having Ellen here with me. Let's get back to the episode. Now, Ellen, we can't leave this as the final group of voters that we don't ask about pro-life.
2: I can't can't leave a party without asking people about pro-life
1: (laughs) stuff. If you can't do that, we certainly can't leave a group of voters out. So, here's what they had to say about that whole topic.
0: As one who's lived through that situation of being unmarried and pregnant, I consider myself a person that... Knows what it is like to be in a situation like that, to have an unplanned pregnancy and to have to make a decision about that pregnancy and knowing how very hard that decision is, that no matter what you choose, it's going to be hard. Mm. It's going to be difficult, no matter what, whether you choose to terminate the pregnancy carry through with the pregnancy and begin parenting, or give the child up for adoption. Those are three very, very difficult things, three very different things. And as one who has lived through that, the thing that I learned more than anything else was that I could never make that decision for another person. Mm. I was an unmarried middle school teacher in Atlanta, Georgia. My boyfriend was African-American, and... I would see people outside of hospitals protesting with pictures of unborn fetuses and so forth. And I thought, what would it be like for me to go up and say, well, how about this situation? Would you want your child going to middle school and having an unmarried white pregnant teacher whose boyfriend is black? Where do you stand on that?
1: Do you think that the term pro-life as it is used now is too narrow meaning to just i relate think it to is abortion.
4: i think it is and i think that's why the democrats i think got the bum rack is i think democrat people think oh you're pro pro-abortion yeah. and uh, i really a lot of my friends and personally myself i'm not pro-abortion i'm pro-life and I think how do you help minimize abortion because it's always been a difficulty with with people's uh, challenges in life
1: You do consider yourself pro-life. Yeah. What does that term mean to you?
3: It means a belief that life is holy. We don't know when the soul enters the body, and we can't know that. But I think believing life is holy means we should err on the side of believing it might be there. Sure. But I also think, I mean, can we not say that... There's doubt there, and that you know, well-intentioned people could disagree. I don't think that someone who's pro-choice is evil or stupid. I was reflexively pro-choice for most of my life, just because everyone else around me was. Kind of came late to being pro-life.
1: Do you think that the pro-life agenda should be expanded?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I don't. I don't think that pro-life just means pro-cute life. So I think you know, pro-life includes. The dying, the depressed, the disabled people in prison, people living under under sentence of death. We don't have much training in our culture that teaches us to see life as sacred. We live in a culture that teaches us to see life as pretty expendable. And and to me, that's why I know lots of good-hearted people who are pro-choice, and I don't I don't blame them for it. I'm not angry at them for it. I don't think they're evil or stupid. I think there's just Not a lot of support for standing in awe of the human soul as something that's special and different from the rest of creation. I mean, I stand in awe of animals and mountains and ice crystals and planets, but the human soul, um, to me, is in a special category. But our culture doesn't teach me that. I mean, you know, the, the Bible and church tradition teach me that. Like any other political issue, I think abortion is only going to get dealt with in imperfect and messy ways. I'm not holding my breath for a Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade, but I think you know there's a I think there's a kind of mistaken picture out there that women getting abortions are teenage girls who made mistakes when actually women who are getting abortions are women who've already had several kids, they're working several jobs, they're not supported by someone who has a paying job. You know, a woman whose mother was able to care for her first two children when she went back to work and now her mother is too old to do that. She has no maternity leave. She has skimpy health care. May really... Recoil at the idea of aborting child number four, but look at children one, two, three, and think about what she needs to do to support them, and and feel like there's there's not a lot of support there.
1: So, Ellen, you were nodding vigorously along to Mary there, our, our, who we heard from last. Not much to add to that. No,
2: I just always appreciate when people just really articulately nail. The consistent life ethic,
1: and she's like,
2: because I can't do that.
1: She is, she's kind of like your Catholic
2: version, of yeah. Myself. Bizarro Ellen,
1: she's like bizarro Catholic Ellen because she's like voting for Obama and voting against Trump, but pretty, pretty passionately pro life. And she it believes it the in the it.
2: Eucharist, which I can't get my head around. Not yet, we have a lot in common, Mary.
1: But you she's your, I, yeah, she's your bizarre Catholic version.
2: Dear Mary, I'm about an inch away from becoming a Catholic. Call me.
1: <laughs> I can make that happen. Now, Jennifer's answer, you and I, I loved interviewing Jennifer. We're going to hear more about her story. She did end up keeping that baby that she mentions, but she gives an argument there saying, it's kind of an argument. She says, I wanted to go to those picketers and say, Would you be okay morally with your kid having a junior high teacher who's got a biracial baby in her belly out of a unmarried
2: white pregnant teacher whose boyfriend is black?
1: But I think that first of all, it sort of doesn't matter what the Picketers would think. It's kind of like if the picketers happen to be racist, it doesn't really matter. We can really
2: unpack that. And I want to give her some credit, too, because sometimes when people are asking you questions and you give one example, that may not be the best. She may not agree that that was her best example. But, I mean, I could just tear that argument apart because it's not a scientific argument, A. And if the alternative for being inconvenienced is saving a life, you know, it's set for me. I hate to use that word, inconvenience. Because it's or no, callous, if it's
1: more like if the alternative saving a life or taking some scorn from a bunch of yeah, bigoted that's a, evangelicals, just a strange, even then you, you take this, I mean, I think you argument. take the scorn that that's obviously not the reason that she. I think what bothered me about that
2: that argument, I don't, we shouldn't talk too much about it because I don't think her point was to m- make that her yeah. pro-choice argument or anything, but the idea that. What should have been a personal choice for her, hmm. she made—she kind of made it sound like, well, it's all—it's up to the—my students' parents what they think, hmm. and, which was Yeah, and not I, a but good that's
1: not—she didn't—you know, I, I did the whole interview, and that's—that's that's definitely not what she meant. She actually did keep that child. Which is
2: why I want to say— Right.
1: Jen, and
2: if people call you Jen,
1: <laughs> I, I
2: sometimes— this is yeah. why Dan has to edit me out a lot, because it's always... No, not. no,
1: it's good, because she she brings up something interesting. And it's actually similar to, remember, Jason Brooks in our Christians of Color episodes saying, what are you going to do when all these babies come out and they're black and gay and Muslim? Like, I love th-
2: the... And I think I remember similar. saying this, because I love the idea of a black, gay, Muslim baby. Baby,
1: yeah. Well, <laughs> you wouldn't know they're they're gay. Or Muslim, I guess, for a while. Yeah, there you go. I, is there baptism in Islam? I don't know. Uh, but... The the point is there, but it's also like it's beside the point, right? I mean, it's there's, totally beside. the there point There is a maybe a legal and an ethical and a, a maybe a, a biomedical bioethical question about abortion, and and you know even if all those picketers were a bunch of racist idiots, like it, it doesn't really have any bearing on on the question. But Jennifer, I'm you know I'm just we're gonna give her the benefit out there because of the rest of her story, which which I have heard and which you guys will be hearing soon. So now let's hear from each of our voters on how they see Jesus relating to politics and what God requires of Christians in the civic realm. And let's start with Jennifer. How should the teachings of Jesus inform a voter?
0: I think if we're going to be consistent with our faith, and if we're going to truly take up that cross and follow Jesus, we're going to be putting ourselves in the face of suffering. We're going to be engaging with people who are having a hard time in their lives because Jesus seemed to have a real heart for people who were marginalized. And we ourselves can be marginalized in many ways as well and then find a different and better way forward. So when it's time to fill out our ballots, I would think that the ways that Jesus has changed and whispered into our souls and prompted us and informed us that that would would have some bearing on whether or not we are passing local initiatives for taxes, for helping underprivileged or unserved segments of our community. My faith is so intrinsic to who I am that I hope that everything that I'm doing and saying is consistent with my claim to be Mennonite.
1: How should the teachings of Jesus inform a voter?
0: You can edit this first part
3: out. That was actually the hardest question for me. I think, you know, I feel like politics are so ugly and not, and I don't even just mean the language around campaigning um, and all the, all the dirty tricks that go into that on both sides. I just mean like the way laws get made, especially on a national level where the job of a senator, a congressperson, is to bring pork back home to their district. That's how it is. Yeah. It's, it's this hideous, cynical, messy, fraught, compromised process. You know, I think especially for somebody like me who feels, as you can imagine, pretty orphaned in American politics as a pro-life liberal. So I tend to approach politics just like... You know, I just want to, like, put on long gloves that come up all the way to my elbows and just, like, open up the hood of the car, and we're just going to get covered with grease and try to make the, try to fix the car. And whatever we have to do to fix the car,
1: we need the car to work. But all of it is um, distasteful.
3: Kind of, yeah. yeah. I mean...
1: There are very few kumbaya moments in fixing a car.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, more in fixing a car, I think, actually, than in (laughs) politics. Yeah, that says.
0: um,
3: There's a dignity to fixing the car, (laughs) but um, you know, I think I I read the Bible, I pray, I you know, I I imagine the kingdom of God, and then I look at what we have, and they're pretty far apart. But I just think, well, what are the micro steps that get us? a tiny bit closer to the kingdom of God. And I think, you know, the Bible's pretty consistent and clear that societies and cultures, God judges societies and cultures based on how they care for the poor. That seems consistent in the Old Testament and the new.
1: Yeah, old Um, and new. Yeah. How should the teachings of Jesus inform the behavior or the platform of a candidate or an office holder?
3: I mean, I think the thing that we Christians would all hope to see in a leader would be humility. I am in your midst as one who serves Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Like that a, a leader, a leader doesn't lord it over people. A leader is not about ego, not about winning, not about winning winners, winners and losers. That a, a leader is about lifting people up. Not that I believe our effect, our elected officials would be, much like Jesus. I mean, they have to, they have to get under the greasy hood of the car, but I still think that it's, I still think that humility is kind of the core, the core virtue that I'd want to, I'd want to see in leaders.
1: In terms of how we relate to fellow citizens or other people in our country, what does God require of his followers?
3: Humility. And to me, that means assuming the best of others. I tend to be, because of where I live, surrounded with people who believe, as I do, and it's really easy to fall into believing that all reasonable people, you know, believe that carbon emissions are really important. Right. <laughs> if you don't believe that, you must be unreasonable. And I, I think I see that on both sides of the political spectrum, like sort of a quickness to, to say that somebody who disagrees with you... Either that they've been duped by the political machinery of the other side, that they've, they've been tricked, they've swallowed the Kool-Aid, they've, that they're, they're foolish, or that they're not good-hearted. So I think God wants us to assume...
1: Stupid or evil.
3: That they're either stupid or evil. And I think God wants us to assume that others are, are as, we, as we are, as we see ourselves, and that they have good hearts... Good intentions, that they're intelligent, that they're decent. Uh, humility means a, a willingness to see, to to note the biases of your own sources. So, I like to listen to NPR, and I can I can see that NPR leads me to certain biases. Mm-hmm. I still like NPR, but and and not to think that I'm too smart for that. Not to think like, oh, I'm. I can see through. Right. I can see through that and not be influenced by it. So from time to time, I try listening to to other more conservative news sources, and it, that always goes badly. <laughs> like, <laughs> it can be hard. Yeah, like, it's yeah, it's hard. I went on. I, I tried reading Breitbart for a while actually, to see kind of what it was all about. But that was hard.
1: In the realm of how we relate to one another as fellow citizens, or just anyone who's in our country, or in our town. What does God require of his followers?
4: I always share this story about honor when I marry somebody. And, and I share the story where my sister-in-law is a famous violist. And a friend of theirs came over when they played in Vancouver Symphony. And we had him over for dinner. And I guess when you get to that level, I didn't know I'm not a musician. My wife is. And they brought their violin and the viola into our room in Green Lake. And after dinner, I asked Cal, the guy who had the viola, violin, if I can play his, if I can hold his uh, violin. And um, he looked at me kind of funny, and I didn't know that was not an appropriate thing to do, <laughs> so he kind of pulls the the violin out of his case, he gives it to me, and I'm really a, a poor shoe shiner boy. He's, uh, I'm from, my dad was a shoe shiner, so I grew up really not really having much access to, to musical instruments, so I said, can I play it? And that was the worst thing you can ask anyone. So he said, no, I'd rather you not. So as I was looking at the, at the violin, I looked through the keys, uh, the little signature there, and I, I saw the letters S, T, R, A, D. It was a Stradivarius. So I was holding it in my hand. I thought it was just a piece of wood. as a violin. It was a Stradivarius, so my hands were shaking. I gave it back to him really quickly. So my, What was a
1: Stradivarius violin I don't know
4: what that is. Oh, so you don't know what a Stradivarius like? It was $2 million, like the, re- the most rare violin a ever. $2 million two, dollar right, right now, that's probably worth a $6 million. But in my point is, that piece of wood that I thought was just a violin, because I knew what a Stradivarius was, and the cost of it it, it, it made me tremble. I had so much honor for that piece of wood. And I think if I can ask any Christian, any human being, is how do we honor every human being that comes face-to-face, heart-to-heart with us? So if I can do anything, if I can just stamp a five-letter word on your head in my head, and the word is honor. How do we honor one another? How do we love one another? How do we respect even when people do horrible things? When Trump tweets this or that, how do we honor the person behind the tweets? And the person behind the tweets is a person created in the image and likeness of God. It may be disfigured, it may be muddied up and blotted out, but that you can never snuff that away. You, it can be really opaque and dark and covered up and imprisoned, but. So I think our job is to, as human beings, to the best of our abilities, it's really hard when people hurt you and do really hard things, but to honor one another would be my invitation.
1: Ellen, can you imagine honoring the divine spark inside Donald Trump equally to the divine spark in, like, a child being ripped from its family at the border by Donald Trump's immigration policies? Can you even fathom valuing them the same
2: well in a way donald trump is a child so it's hard. it's not that much <laughs> okay. of a, st- that's st- a
1: shortcut <laughs> no but really no, like no, that I is mean, so that is what my christianity says i need to do and that is hard i can't i'm not doing it right now as i think about it i'm not able to do it right now
2: yeah no that's really that would take a lot, months and months of practice years you're closing yeah. your eyes trying to envision it.
1: I'm trying to like will myself. Yeah, but to be it's fair,
2: for, let's say we're comparing almost any adult person to that of a an child being t- real, yeah, yeah, that was a, a little bit of an extreme example. That's even hard.
1: Sure. There was a lot in there. I mean, I don't know. We don't need to talk about much of it. I felt like most of it spoke for itself. I'm
2: really interested in looking up Stradivarius. And I should know because I played <laughs> viola in the Seattle Junior Symphony. Oh, nice. And he said, and this guy knows what a Stradivarius is. And I, I've heard the name, but I didn't know that that was a big deal. I you certainly maybe it's because I never touched one.
1: Yeah. that's That's a really powerful image of like that violin. That's how valuable every person, more valuable than that, every person. And that's... I hate saying convicting.
2: Why? I don't know. Is it makes me too squirm. evangelical for you?
1: Yeah. It's just, it's like, I'm, I'm a little too punk rock to feel okay, okay saying that. Okay, but if that. that's
2: the appropriate word to use. It so is then...
1: the appropriate word. Okay. Well.
2: Don't be too cool for convicted, I Dan. won't be
1: too cool for conviction. <laughs> All right. Well, we will see you guys next week for part two of this episode and the final episode of this season two. Before we go, we're going to
0: play a little clip from next week before we sign off. I grew up in a household that had a lot of domestic violence. I suffered a lot of physical and verbal abuse from one of my parents. My siblings suffered the same, and we, of course, were violent with each other because we didn't know anything else. That was our known world, and I knew from the pain that I would feel when the violence was inflicted upon me, that that was really not a solution, that my being disciplined that way did not correct me. It filled me with indignation and with rage and with pain and sorrow and shame and guilt.
1: for listening you can of course support the show by going to patreon.com slash depolarize or depolarizepodcast.com and click become a patron please go to dancokewords.com and join up for the email list I will not spam you depolarize is edited by Chris Keen
2: and And that's your whole staff I think that's our
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's the whole staff alright guys see you later Ellen, will you remind us what our four groups of voters are? How
2: do you do this to me, Dan? Okay, yeah. first we've got white evangelical. Nope, I want to start over.
1: Okay. <laughs> That's fine. Take your time.
2: All right, we've got white.
1: Okay. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> well, last time I you know got last time you, you got through the word evangelical. This time all you made it to was white. <laughs> okay, just
5: what are the four groups? You can do it. Okay. Let's see if I can do it.